Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about transitional terminology. I will say that I don't know that I've ever gone into an inappropriate conversations recording as unprepared as this one. And it's not like I haven't done some preparation. It just seems like no matter how much I try to read and inform myself, I'm never going to get all the way there. Because this is going to be a topic where I'm going to pick up on some things which I've left as loose ends since the very first year of inappropriate conversations. I was looking back at Inappropriate Conversations 37, which I believe I called Always Being Happy. And it was the first time I tried to speak about questions related to sexual orientation. And the first thing I had to do in order to talk through that topic was to simplify it, to dumb it down, to make the conversation an either-or. And that's actually one of the things I'm going to complain about in this particular episode. If I do what I hope to well, I'm going to talk somewhat about the concept of political correctness and some of the things that are wrong about the uh, sort of society's backlash against that concept, or even that concept itself being applied to what might be described as merely good manners in the uh, first decades that I was growing up. But I also want to talk a little bit about transgender and bisexuality, and I want to mention that first inappropriate conversations a discussion of questions related to gender, because the, the only way I could talk about the topic was to simplify it by eliminating bisexuality as a topic altogether. And I didn't get anywhere near transgender as a topic at all, because I needed to speak uh, directly to the church in many ways about some of the things that I think the church was getting wrong about homosexuality. And to do so, I had to make, I just, I had to make it very either or, I guess, for want of a better word. But here I am with a topic that I put on this list some time ago, thinking that this might be the time I, I made some conversation happen about trans versus cis, or this notion of being a cisgendered male which is what I am. And I think I've got to just do a little bit of house cleaning right up front and maybe throw out some resources where there are people who that I've been looking at for input and guidance who do this better than I do. So if I stumble and get it wrong, if my ignorance shows, it's not that I'm not pointing people in another direction. And one of the things I would say right up front is that I do not, never have, and probably never will, I think I never will, identify myself on a regular basis as a cisgendered male. It's not that I couldn't, because that's what I am. I was born um, biologically male, and I psychologically I'm male, and I have veered from that course. I am the opposite of trans in that respect. But it's a sign of my privilege, which extends well beyond just my gender, that I don't ever have to introduce myself in that manner. There's not a part of my maleness that has to be explained. Not that a trans man has to explain himself either, but society does ask these questions. And, and again, if I get to the point of discussing political correctness here in a little bit, I want to deal with that. Because although I've very rarely, if ever, been interviewed, at least certainly not on a national stage I've never been interviewed, I'd be very shocked if that interview began or didn't get very far in without a lot of conversation about my genitals popping up 
or the manner in which my wife and I have sex with each other. These are just not things that come up in conversation because I have that privilege. Anyone who's relatively new to inappropriate conversations may not have heard me rattle off this list before, but I think it probably is a good idea for me to do so. Humorously, I think the first time I did it was, again, in that first year of inappropriate conversations, looking around the 4th of July time period and kind of mockingly answering the question of what my qualifications for president might be if I were to sort of run for office or something along those lines. I believe I called the uh, episode simply that, qualified to be your president. Me? Oh, I think not. Uh, Inappropriate conversations number 18. I'm a male, white, married, Protestant, employed man. There's lots of things about me that fall into that privileged section of our society. I'm in the majority, if you look at it from a minority-majority breakdown and split. And one of the things that I've been listening to to try to equip myself was called to my attention by a friend of mine from England named Shane years ago, literally years ago. He sent me an article about Janet Mock and indicated that there's there's an inappropriate conversation show just in Janet alone, and that um, hearing her story and understanding more of what she's about and reading her writings could definitely lead me in that direction. Now, I'm going to take a real risk with a different drummer today, and I'm not going to name Janet Mock, although I could, because she actually is, you know, in many ways the opposite of me. I'm cis male. She's trans female. I'm of one, you know, kind of Caucasian background, both my parents Caucasian. She has a mixed background, um, African-American and Hawaiian. So there's a lot of stuff that puts her in a situation where she can speak and has spoken quite intelligently to the intersectional challenges of not just being one kind of minority or in one specific class of individual, but in in a multifaceted class of individual. I'd recommend right up front, and again, this will be the first of several recommendations, a podcast that I encountered through The New Republic. Now, I've been a fan of The New Republic as a magazine, primarily because of their arts, the poetry, and the film criticism in particular. The passing the last year or so of film critic Stanley Kaufman hit me kind of hard, and I encountered Kaufman's work through The New Republic. And uh, frankly, the world of film criticism still has not been the same since he's gone, and may never be. But when I see the words New Republic together, I don't have a... um, a negative conservative backlash against the liberal bent. I don't have a uh, an anti-Jewish idea of conspiracy theories or any other sort of racism that seems so pungently under the under the radar, but bubbling up to the surface every now and then in this beginning of the 2016 political season as people will be putting their political feet in their mouths regularly the longer Bernie Sanders stays in the race, for example. But I saw a podcast recently called Intersection, with Jameel Smith, and it's associated with New Republic. And I'll say the first time I saw it, I saw a SoundCloud link on NewRepublic.com for their article number 123153 called Janet Mock, Janet Mock Contains Multitudes, talking uh, about her interview on that show, episode number seven of Intersection. For what of a better word, a podcast. I'm not sure whether it's a podcast or something slightly different than that. I actually listened to it uh, again just today on on my way home from work tonight on Stitcher. And this may be a good time to just kind of do a little bit of house cleaning. You can listen to Inappropriate Conversations, all shows ever recorded, at www.inappropriateconversations.org. 
the show, the RSS feed is there. Uh, you also can hear inappropriate conversations. And the other podcast on the feed, Walk the Earth, are both on Stitcher, stitcher.com. I've been going through and intend to get back to it, the process of putting clips, uh, promotional segments from inappropriate conversation shows on SoundCloud so someone can listen to a little bit of past shows and get a sense of what the episode was about through listening rather than just reading the blurb that you can find on the website. Inappropriate conversations can be uh, reached via email at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. I have a Twitter account that's also ic underscore greg, just like the SoundCloud account. And I do uh, interact there. The other way to uh, involve yourself with uh, inappropriate conversations, to see the things that I'm preparing to discuss in many ways, by going on Facebook. There's a Facebook page listed as a cause for inappropriate conversations. And I spend a lot of time there sharing articles and sharing posts of what I put online. This week, in fact, I put a quick note up, kind of looking forward to the state of the shows, both inappropriate conversations and walk the earth for next year, calendar year 2016. And I was looking forward to what the topics might be. And on the one hand, have a pretty good feel for what the whole year might lay out to be. That's been a little bit easy because there have been shows that I've bounced out of months like August, September, and now December, just making room for other topics. My uh, opportunity to go to Pride 48 in Las Vegas this year came at the expense, and it was, a, it was an easy expense to pay, of moving things that I plan to do in September out to next year's September. But the other thing that I did was I've tightened my release schedule up now even further. If you go back to the first year of Inappropriate Conversations, there was pretty much a show a week. I felt like it was a habit I was going to have to establish by working a regular routine. None of this comes naturally to me. I'm not a... Uh, uh, I'm a, I may have been a journalism major, but I'm not a broadcast major. I, I don't have that experience. And so for a year, I did it on a solid weekly basis, just trying to learn what I needed to learn and, and, and get my feet underneath me, so to speak. And now it is going to the point where I look forward to next year saying that I think maybe this will be a monthly approach. Not that there'll only be one show a month. There'll actually be two. One for Walk the Earth one for inappropriate conversations. But dialing down the pace of shows just a little bit, it gives me a little bit more room to deal with some things going on in the other part of my life, uh, the work side in particular. But I wanted to tie out the fact that I was able to listen on the drive home to the intersection interview between Smith and Janet Mock to get ready for this particular show. And I, I was able to do so through you know, vehicles, uh, applications from Stitcher, and or SoundCloud. The other reason that I wanted to make sure I talked about this issue this year and this month of this year was that Janet Mock, initially being a trans female from a poor black family, broken home, divorced, all that other sort of stuff going on that makes her interesting. And from a Venn diagram, part of what was would probably be a, a pretty diagram, an ornate diagram, if you will, with lots of overlaying and overlapping circles. But she also got married, maybe just a few days ago, in the month of November 2015. The article that I saw, really I think words it interestingly, it was um, printed on refinery29.com, showing up as, I believe, maybe an Essence article for Brides Magazine. Here's the beginning of the article. For trans icon and author Janet Mock, getting married felt like, quote, an impossible dream come true, she writes, in Brides. More than just a gorgeous Hawaiian wedding, the stunning bride's Friday nuptials symbolized the power of true love 
and the social progress Mock herself has boldly championed. She met Aaron Treadwell, her now husband, in a classic New York City way. The couple bumped into each other on a Lower East Side dance floor, and Mock was instantly smitten. He was gorgeous, Mock writes, the, the kind of handsome I'd seen in my mind when I let myself be the girl who can have that. The girl I'd watched on screen so many times in rom-coms that always seemed to end in marriage. After a few dates, Ma came out to her dream guy as transgender, and he didn't balk. Instead, Treadwell simply embraced her. Ever since, the couple had been inseparable, and Treadwell popped the question last December. This from... Uh, Refinery29.com, an article written by Kristen Conger, November 7th, 2015. Uh, For want of a better word, bringing in the things which friends have shared and pointed me toward to learn about some of these issues that I just have very little understanding of from Janet Mock. The other resource that I've used here, and it's a resource I'm going to recommend, a podcast that I believe grew out of the Pride 48 community and one that you can find on the show's page at pride48.com, The North and South of Things. Friends who live in different states, in different parts of the country, where a North-South divide makes sense. It's uh, Mark from Minnesota and George from Georgia, who get together in a very tightly controlled 30-minute kind of podcast format, have a discussion about serious issues. Now, these are two gay men who are speaking to issues that in some cases tie directly to their own personal experience or issues related to homosexuality or uh, society. But in other cases, they've expanded that beyond to uh, things like how do you fund a stadium and what's the right, what's the right role for a rich sports owner and a group of taxpayers in building a new uh, facility, a temple of sport, if you will. But the episode from them that I've relied the most heavily on is on this particular topic of transgender, because it's an area, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, where I have very little information. And uh, I heard on the Satersphere podcast a mention of the fact that they'd hit this topic and hit it in a good, thought-provoking way. And I've listened to the podcast twice in just the last three and a half weeks, Again, getting myself ready for this particular topic. Along the way, I did send a tweet to the show via Twitter. I uh, said that I'd enjoyed listening to it. I've, now I've caught up and listened to every episode they've recorded so far. There's a, a 10, I believe, out there, including episode 5, released in August of this year, called Trans Tipping Point. In the course of that online interaction, they asked me if I had any thoughts or any topic ideas, and I did throw one out there and said, and you guys have been very helpful on this question where I come from an, a- an angle of complete ignorance on what it means to be trans. And, you know, from a personal perspective, uh, George doesn't have any personal experience here either. Mark had friends, and they talked about it from that perspective. So I asked them if they wouldn't consider doing a show in the future on bisexuality, because for the same reason that I sort of eliminated that as a conversation point in really all previous inappropriate conversations discussing Uh, sexual orientation and gender issues. I'm just as clueless there. It's something that is not within my wheelhouse. So how do you speak about something intelligently when you don't have any experience and when all the knowledge you've obtained has come through the guidance of friends, people pointing the way, shows like Greetings from Nowhere and uh, The Seder Sphere, The North and South of Things, The Greatest Events in Sporting History, pointing me toward resources, and I found that it's very difficult for me to keep all of the information in my head 
because I'm not the kind of person who necessarily learns that way. I, I'm, I'm a better student through experience, perhaps. I don't know. But I do know that what I want to communicate today is that all of our lives, I've been on the planet more than 50 years now, and for all of our lives, these issues have existed. If you go back into what I would describe as ancient times, ancient cultures, uh, Janet Mock mentions that in Hawaii there is terminology which could easily be used to describe someone who's transgender, and Native American Indians have had terminology that probably may be controversial, but you could make an argument that you could use some of the language of some Indian tribes to describe their awareness of people who were transgender. So this is not something that is new. And I think you tend to see in this age of arguing about political correctness a tendency to pretend that this is all something that isn't in any way natural that it hasn't pre-existed us, and that it's just a bunch of misbehaving people acting out. And that's kind of where I want to step in and say, I can't speak to the experience, and I don't really know of, I may have friends who are trans male or trans female, but I, I don't know this, but I can certainly speak to the terminology. And that it's not just that there are people who I think we really struggle to find the right way from a media perspective, of communicating to, with, for, and about, because we stumble over things like pronouns, and that we're really having more challenge than we should, figuring out how to describe something that falls outside this gender binary normative. And so at the same time that we might be talking about people who have made a transition from male to female or female to male, we also as a society have to recognize that we're having some struggles dealing with our own transition in simply how to describe these things. When an actress like Laverne Cox appears in an interview program, and the barrage of questions she initially gets are all about her sexual organs and her sexual practices, something is wrong here. If an actress, even an actress of a similar age, say Jessica Alba, showed up, and the first handful of questions that she was asked in that interview show was about her vagina, there would be a real but there would probably be a real uproar and perhaps a legitimate uproar. But somehow we let the prurience of curiosity get in our way and we lose our manners. Now here's the problem. When I talk about the concept of you know, transitional terminology, other people could easily use this expression to denigrate what I'm suggesting we all should do a better job of doing. Political correctness. Now, I'm not going to argue that there is no such thing as political correctness, and I'm not going to pretend that I don't understand what people who use that phrase might mean. Truthfully, it runs a gamut between people who are looking to find an excuse to use racist, sexist, and other insensitive terminology. But it also may come to a place where we sometimes have a hard time explaining what it is we mean because we are concerned enough about the use of terminology that you might have to rattle off five or six words together in a phrase to say what we used to use with a single one or two syllable word. The problem is that if that single one or two syllable word, no matter what it might be, whether it be referring to somebody who's got severe mental um, disability, or whether it be referring to somebody's race or their sexuality, that simple one or two syllable word that we used to use a lot when I was just a kid is, in many ways, easily understood as being rude, confrontational, 
or denigrating. And I have a real problem when people decide that they're going to use terms like political correctness as a blunt instrument to strike back and suggest that people who ask us to call people by the name they want to be called are somehow being inappropriate. It is not inappropriate. When I was growing up, this was called manners. And that first uh, inappropriate conversation, number 37, about being happy all the time, the title of the episode came from a little clip from the show, the movie Blast from the Past. In Blast from the Past, the main character, Adam, was born in a fallout shelter where his parents had gone and locked themselves in for 35 years because they were convinced that uh, World War III had started and it was going to be significant nuclear fallout. They'd mistaken a simple airplane accident as a sign that the Cuban Missile Crisis had gone you know, severely wrong. And uh, that was before my time, but I can imagine that if you were alive and aware of the politics of that era, the Cuban Missile Crisis would have been some very, very tense days, probably not just in American history, but in Russian and certainly um, in Latin American history as well. Uh, we sometimes undersell the fact that the people in Cuba had to be every bit as terrified as the people in Florida for exactly the same reasons. But Adam, in the show Blast in the Past, emerges 35 years later with an education that was, he was truly homeschooled in every sense of the word. He was several feet below the earth homeschooled by his parents with their use of terminology and their understanding of the world. And at some point during the show, he meets a girl who introduces Adam to her roommate, and he's questioning and concerned about whether or not she's living with him. Is that a romantic relationship? And trying to diffuse it, she simply tells Adam he's gay. She means he's gay as, as in, don't worry about him, uh, he's not a rival for my affection, or whatever. And Adam doesn't know anything, he has no way of interpreting the word gay other than happy. And looks to uh, the character he's speaking to and says, well, good for you. And that's sort of the context. But a little later on, conversing with each other about why Adam's manners are so aggressively good <laughs> in the minds of some of the other characters. And he said, it's from his parents. Parents taught him that a gentleman means somebody who makes other people feel as comfortable as they possibly can. And good manners are just a way of showing respect for other people. But there's not anything remotely good manners or respectful or gentlemanly about referring to Caitlyn Jenner as a man. There's nothing respectful about you know, somebody who says they would like to be known as Caitlyn and insistently referring to them by a different name, whether that was a different name that that person had celebrity status being recognized and identified at, doesn't really matter. It would be just as rude for somebody to figure out what the birth certificate for Laverne Cox had to say and insist on calling her by some other name. The reality is, if you've got more than one name that you're aware of, that you could choose to identify someone by, good manners, not political correctness, good manners says, figure out how this other human being, who is worthy of my respect for, if no other reason, the fact that they're under human being, who, if I, as a politically conservative Christian, am trying to decide how should I react to this person, maybe I should do it the way Jesus demonstrated, and to treat them the way they would like to be treated, to do unto that person as I would want that person to do unto me. I probably wouldn't like it if Janet Mock had some thing about my past that was embarrassing to me, or that I had moved away and moved on from, 
and sort of staked a claim that I was no longer that way and I was now going to do and be something different. I wouldn't like it if at every available opportunity, in a scornful, mocking voice, she chose to call it out as publicly as she possibly could to make sure that everyone knew that no matter what I said about myself, that I was really that other thing and that there was nothing I could do about it. We need to make a transition in the terminology that we use about other people. And it is no more an inappropriate use of political correctness than asking somebody who has just been married what she would like to be called. Now, it is true that in my lifetime, that same conversation to the newlywed might have been, what is your new last name? As if the woman, having been married, had no choice in the matter. And yeah, maybe there are people who their version of political conservatism somehow leads them into this place of inverse social activism where it's necessary for them to use something like meeting somebody who's recently had a, what um, in the HR world you'd call a life-changing event, the potential for a new last name, whether that be hyphenated or whether it be a complete switch or whether you're married but you're not going to go by the other last name, it is still good manners to say, congratulations on your wedding. What is the name that I'll be calling you by? How would you like me to refer to you? It is, after all, not a big deal if Janet Mock, who is a published writer and someone who has appeared on multiple television programs, would like to continue to be known, at least professionally, as Janet Mock. She doesn't need to take on her husband's last name, and we shouldn't be referring to her by her, her previous first name any more than we should refuse to recognize her new last name if she, choose to took the, if she chose to take that on. The line I'd like to draw is that difference between good old-fashioned good manners and transitional terminology. Because it makes no difference to me which pronoun I use to refer to somebody, but it's polite to ask if you don't know. And we have gotten to the point especially in this sort of constant conflict between the political right and the political left in this country. We've gotten to the point where some people act as if asking people how they'd like to be addressed is somehow rude and confrontational. There's an issue I'm not going to talk about in this particular show, although I could, because that same segment of Christianity that seems to be so aggressively confrontational about things like somebody's name even after it's been legally changed, or the pronoun that we should use to refer to somebody who's in a point of transition. I'm not going to talk about holidays or Christmas, but there are these same people who to, for whom if I were to run into them in an elevator where they're carrying a whole bunch of wrapped gifts uh, in the middle of December, I might, the polite thing to do would be to ask them which holiday they're celebrating. And if they would like me to say Merry Christmas to them, I'd be happy to do it. They'd like me to say Happy Hanukkah, I'd be happy to do that too. And if I can't find the right thing to say, and the safe bet to me is Happy Holidays, to me, a pleasant greeting is a pleasant greeting is a pleasant greeting, right? Again, it's good manners, not some political correctness being enforced by a totalitarian group, to ask people how they would like to be treated, and to treat them accordingly. It is, of course, this problem that we have where the treatment of people who are different, whether they be homosexual or bisexual or transgender, has been so violent and so confrontational. The statistic I heard was that somewhere around 20 different trans women have been murdered 
in the calendar year 2015 alone. Now, I don't know that I could find 20 different trans women if I was charged with the task of coming up with a list tonight. It would take me more than just the rest of this night. I would need time because I don't run into that many, which means it's a pretty fair indication that that much violence is falling upon one sector of our population, that that sector of our population is being treated differently. There is no way that a random distribution of violent crime picks off that many, unless we have even a bigger problem with violent crime that I'm saying we've got. And I called out not too long ago in the Seeing Spot Run episode of Inappropriate Conversations. No, this is a group of people that is targeted and suffers from being targeted. And for that reason, it really probably isn't any surprise that our different drummer, for all of her musical talent and ability, would prefer not to be known or not to have any conversation around her transition from male to female. So I'm taking a risk here. I'm calling someone out as a different drummer on a podcast, therefore publicly. And I'm doing it in an episode where there can be no mistake that the inspiration here is this particular topic. But I intend to spend most of the time talking about how I encountered Wendy Carlos. I encountered Wendy Carlos through her music. I like what Wikipedia has done for their entry for the musician Wendy Carlos, and you can call it political correctness all you want to, but I think they've got it exactly right. Wendy Carlos, born Walter Carlos, November 14th, 1939, meaning that as I'm doing this recording, we're just a week away from Wendy's 76th birthday, uh, is an American composer and performer known for her use of electronic instruments to play classical music and for her film scores. Carlos first came to prominence in 1968 with Switched on Bach, a recording of music by J.S. Bach assembled phrase by phrase on a Moog synthesizer, at the time a relatively new and relatively unknown instrument. The album earned three Grammy Awards in 1969, and, another cl- and other classical recordings followed. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about those classical recordings, because most different drummer segments are not really about the history and biography of the individual so much as they are about my personal encounter with them, and it is more the classical recordings than the soundtrack work. But I would think I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the soundtracks, because probably most people first heard the work of Carlos through the soundtracks. Carlos later began recording original compositions, including the first album of synthesized environmental sounds, Sonic Seasonings, 1972, and an album exploring alternate tunings, Beauty in the Beast. She's worked in film music, writing and performing scores for two Stanley Kubrick movies, A Clockwork Orange, 1971, and The Shining in 1980, as well as the original Tron, 1982. The other way that I think I would cite Carlos from a musical perspective is the 1988 recording, uh, Weird Al Yankovic's Peter and the Wolf. Although Yankovic does appear in a few moments, comic comic moments in particular, on accordion, most of the music driving his interpretation of Peter and the Wolf is the orchestrations of Wendy Carlos. It's history. And from about that time, 3500, 3000 BC, until about the American Revolution, the figures, Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, their King Gatorix, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events 
that that whole year 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors behind the backs of everyone else steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened at the end of the Bronze Age? It's hardcore history. Get hardcore history at dancarlin.com. I don't think I often give enough credit to my brother for my interest in music. I've talked about it before on Inappropriate Conversations that a lot of the different drummers that I've cited, surely a plurality, are musicians. And a lot of my musical influences came through my brother. There was a point, somewhere in the middle of the 1970s, where a trip to the used record store or the library or, or some other sort of a, of a hand-me-down purchase, my brother brought the well-tempered synthesizer from Walter Carlos into our home. And uh, this being, uh, in many ways, a, a play on Bach, uh, the title track is a uh, kind of a, a word play on the well-tempered clavier by Bach, but it also included other... Uh, other composers, Scarlatti, Monteverdi, and Handel in particular. And this was the backup, the follow-up, to the original breakthrough album for Carlos, Switched on Bach. Now, it was probably a couple of years later that my brother went to college, and in the process of probably his freshman year music appreciation or some introduction to music course, he encountered uh, the Brandenburg Concerto. Now, I don't know whether he'd heard Bach's Brandenburg Concertos before, but I do know that in this particular college-level course, uh, those, those concertos left an impression. He and I both, I think, have, uh, have a special place in our hearts for concerto number five, movement one. But this also led him to bring, you know, back to our home in one of the trips back from college. Him being, you know, four and a half years older than I was, uh, was always getting to these sort of things first. Bringing back a windy Carlos album called Switched on Brandenburg's. These are the two, you know, albums by Carlos that along with the Weird Al version of Peter and the Wolf that I would take, uh, if not to the desert island with me, I would at least have them on a short list of music I'd want on the MP3 player. But it's interesting how spread apart they are. You've got a 1969 album in the uh, Well-Tempered Synthesizer, and then, you know, around 1979, give or take, switched on Brandenburg's, and then the collaboration with... with um, Weird Al Yankovic, coming in 1988. So spread apart by a decade, Carlos putting out what I would call instrumental recordings. But imagine my confusion, uh, high school aged, uh, with parents who I think were you know, not eager to discuss issues. I, I remember having a very short and not, com not completely productive conversation with my father, asking him what bisexuality was. And I think he basically said the equivalent of he didn't know. <laughs> or whatever he might know, he wasn't going to. He wasn't prepared to discuss it. And here we were uh, in a family that, despite being very open, and despite my sex education far exceeding the quality of any sex education being offered in America's schools today, transgender wasn't one of those topics that we really did much with. We didn't go there. And here we had from the same artist, unmistakably the same artist, one album by Walter Carlos, another album by Wendy Carlos and my college-age brother being charged with the task of explaining to his junior high, maybe first-year high school little brother, the fact that these were the same person, and what all of that meant. Now, I'm not bringing up this topic to align Carlos with things about her past that she does not want to discuss. I'm okay respecting the notion that, as Wikipedia puts it, Carlos prefers not to discuss her transition, and has asked that her privacy regarding the subject be respected. 
Fair enough. Despite the ironic title, Inappropriate Conversations is not an interview show. So, no, I'm not going to bring it up in questions. And I, I totally understand why she would feel that way. The kind of questions that typically come up in interviews, inappropriate questions, I would say, toward people like Janet Mock and Laverne Cox, tell you all you need to know about the fact that Carlos is probably wise to have taken such a firm stand and drawn a line there. I'm simply saying that from my perspective, a crucial piece of my education and the first questions for me raised around this came through the music of Wendy Carlos. Now, it's also helpful that Wendy Carlos really revolutionized the a musical instrument that at the time was purely experimental. And even from my own music tastes, uh, I learned about the Moog more through Rick Wakeman and Yes than through any classical music artist. But Wendy truly made this a classical musical instrument, uh, winning three Grammy Awards for that very first recording, Switched on Bach, as a matter of fact, and later earning a Lifetime Achievement Award in recognition of contribution to the art and craft of electroacoustic music by the Society for Electroacoustic Music in the United States. That award was conferred in 2005, meaning that in yet another decade, Carlos contributing to music in a significant enough way that that by itself might qualify as a different drummer. I've been sharing on my personal Facebook page a song a day for most of this calendar year, and a lot of that is just letting my MP3 player randomly pick a group and then picking my first track from that artist or group. And the Moog Cookbook was one of them, an album based on doing modern uh, interpretation of rock and pop songs played solely on Moog synthesizers. And again, the first time I would have heard this would have been probably Rick Wakeman, unless, just by chance, I heard the music of Wendy Carlos first. My question as I wrap up the different drummer segment and go back to this concept of transitional terminology, I cannot and refuse to acknowledge that there would be any justifiable reason any teleological hope of an arch-conservative identifying Wendy by the wrong name and using the wrong pronouns to describe her or asking the kinds of questions of her that you wouldn't ask of any other 76-year-old woman living in America today uh, unless you were even more shameful than some of the current crop of Republican presidential candidates clearly are. I can't think of any reason to attack someone in that manner when they have contributed such unbelievable beauty to the art of classical and electronic music. We take a lot for granted, maybe too much for granted, people who live in sort of the majority of, of the United States. I've never gone through a period of time of having to reconcile who I thought I was with who society insisted that I should be. Part of that is the privilege of being male, but more of it is the privilege of being cis. And yet long before, words like cis and trans were part of our terminology, uh, long before the North and South of Things was recording a podcast trying to help people like me understand what terminology is okay and what terminology is insulting, these concepts were there. They were there, we just didn't talk about them. 
So the other pernicious aspect of, of the backlash against political correctness that I'd like to cite is that first, there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking the extra step just as a gentleman, for want of a better word, of finding out how people would like to be addressed before we deign to address them. That's one. But the other thing I wonder is what is the end game? What is the end goal of people who want to get rid of this whole political correctness and roll back the clock from the openness that we have over conversations about gender? It could be that there are people who really feel that there are two and only two things going on inside human sexuality and gender identification. And what I would say to those people who approach it from a Christian perspective is that stop talking to me about intelligent design, if that's your worldview. Because clearly, the design that we've been given is far more complex than what you're willing to grant that it ought to be. And how intelligent could the designer that you worship be if the world, if nature, has given us such a greater and grander complexity than anything that you find coming to you from the mind of God. I think we worship the same God. I'm just willing to grant that my God's got a bigger mind than the God of many evangelical Christians. But maybe I shouldn't be surprised that something like 20 trans women alone, just trans women, have been assaulted and murdered in the United States of America in, in less than 12 months. Because I'm curious to find out what we would do if the people who actually have stayed on the opposite side of this, you know, from me, if my perspective is one point of view and you flip that coin and look at the opposite point of view, what is their goal? What are they looking for? At its most benign, it is trying to find the power to force people to pretend that they aren't who they say they are, to lie to themselves and therefore lie to everyone else, and essentially go back into a closet of some sort. But at its worst, it turns into a sort of a eugenics movement of its own, wanting to wipe the planet out and, and, and expunge our, our world of anybody who happens to be different. And I look at it and I say, I've taken them to the logical extreme. Clearly, some folks have taken it upon themselves to try to remove trans people from this planet in violent ways. But even if you say, well, maybe the majority of people who would describe themselves as politically conservative Christians don't feel that way. But what ultimately is their end goal? If they're not you know, personally and violently removing people from the planet, asking them to pretend that they don't exist is just as bad. I believe, just going from memory, that that first conversation about always being happy in the first year of inappropriate conversations included this kind of questioning. I was just raising the questions back then. I wasn't trying to provide any sort of definitive answer. And that good, that's good. That works here. Because how can I provide a definitive answer when I don't really have the experience or the intellectual footing that I would need to do so? But I remember raising the question of, if all you want people to do is tell you a good lie, to pretend they don't exist, to say they're not who they really are, so that you'll feel more comfortable around them, what kind of a monstrosity is that? How can lying and asking people to lie be any sort of a Christian solution to anything, even if it's something that, that you as a conservative, politically active Christian find to be a problem? And what does it mean if, as I suspect, we're not that far away from turning a corner and having the overwhelming majority of the people in this country and in the Western world, in the Western Christian world, realizing this was never a problem to be solved in the first place, that there are people 
who are born with more than just a male, cis male, and female, cis female gender. And we need to do something better about that than pretend it doesn't exist, intimidate, even with violence, people who are different, or ask them to lie to us. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. Thanks for listening. everybody rich here you know one of the best things about simply syndicated is the great community of listeners we've got and all of the things you guys do to help us out something you could do that helps us spread the word about our shows is to let people know that you're listening on facebook and twitter all our episodes have sharing buttons on them so you can tell your friends about us with just a few clicks of the mouse just visit our website at simplysyndicated.com and click the sharing buttons to help spread the word 